starting a new series today called Get a Grip, and um, we're going to be talking about various areas of your life where some or all of us need to get a grip, and today we're going to talk about our lives and our schedule, and I was thinking about this, and I was thinking back to when I was a sophomore at Borger High School um, many years ago, it was actually 30 years ago, um, do the math, that was 1980, I know some of you weren't alive, it's okay. Um, but I was a sophomore and I was in choir. And one of the things that we did every year was we went to solo and ensemble contest. And so that means you're either going to sing a solo for the judges or you're in a group of people that are singing for the judges. And late in January of uh, my sophomore year, we had a, a solo and ensemble competition scheduled in Amarillo, which is about 45 miles from Borger. So it's about the same distance Tyler is from, from Palestine. And, uh, I didn't want to go when the bus left because we had, you know, 30 or 40 people going and, and I didn't want to leave as early as they had to and, and I wasn't scheduled to uh, uh, sing until like the afternoon. So I asked my choir director if I could, if my mom could bring me. And that was a big thing back then. I, I don't know if they do those things anymore, but he said yes. And then there was a friend of mine. She didn't sing until later. And so she asked if she could come with us. And he said yes. So we slept in. Sometime during the night, a blizzard blows in to the panhandle. And uh, that's pretty common if you've ever been through the panhandle. And so it snows about seven or eight inches by the time we get up and get on the road. But by this time, by 1980, my parents had lived in Borger for uh, 30 years. And so mom was a great snow driver. I mean, she's the one that taught me she would be going down the road and, and turn the steering wheel and make us go sideways. And she goes, now, if you're ever driving a car and you get sideways, this is what you do. And you turn. And I was amazed in junior high that my mom was this kind of driver, man. So as soon as I got a car, I had to go try, you know, and, and that was almost catastrophic, but it wasn't. But anyway, so mom had shown me this stuff from from years. And I wasn't worried at all. So we're driving from Borger to Amarillo. We're about halfway there, and we come over this slight hill because in the Panhandle of Texas, that's the only kind of hill you have is a slight hill. We come over this slight hill, and, and we hit a patch of ice. And before we knew it, we were spinning 360s out of control, went across oncoming traffic, and we're crying out to God. We don't know what's going to happen. Mom's done everything right, but it's just solid ice everywhere around there. And we end up on the opposite side of the road in the ditch about 20 feet from the road. So, you know, I'm in my little dress shoes and, and my suit because you have to look nice when you go sing for judges. So I get out. I'm the only dude in the car. I get out and I start trying to push. And it's a Ford LTD, which means big honking car. And I'm pushing and, and nothing. Well, the girl that was coming with us, she was a sophomore as well, and she's in high heels and a dress. She doesn't even bother to get out of the car. She wasn't even going to try that. So mom just keeps spinning the wheels, and we're stuck. We are just stuck there in the middle of nowhere. And no traffic. Praise God no traffic was coming because we would have been smashed when we went across oncoming traffic. So we sit there and sit there, and you know we kind of pray, and we kind of say, what are we going to do? And oh, well, I didn't want to sing today anyway, that type of deal. Finally, this dude comes by. He sees us off the side of the road, and he stops. And now this is not a bright thing to do, but he stops in the middle of the road because he's driving a Mustang. Anyway, there's just all kinds of craziness there, driving on ice in a Mustang. But he stops, leaves his car on the middle of the road, and he comes down, helps us get out of the ditch, and we push, and we struggle, and we strain, and got snow and mud all over us, but we eventually get us back on the highway. We get to our destination. Everything was great, but I could go to my mom. I could call my mom today, and I could say, Mom, remember that time we've spun out of control? And she'd go, oh, yes. That's one of the worst things of our lives. We, we will never forget being totally helpless as we're spinning and screaming and praying to God till we wind up in a ditch. 
Now, you may never have experienced unexpected 360s in a car on the road, but I'm willing to bet there have been times that at least portions of your life have felt like they were spinning out of control. Am I right? Anybody ever experienced portions just, or, or maybe your whole life spinning out of control, but at least certain things that you do not have a grip on? And my guess is you do not like that feeling any more than I do. Being out of control is hard on you. Um, and so what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about how to get those areas of our lives back under control. We have a built-in, God-given desire to have a grip, to have control in our lives. And the question is, how do we ha- try to have control? Well, how many of you have ever tried New Year's resolutions? I read this week, the average New Year's resolution le- lasts less than a week, unless you're a politician, in which case it, it lasts only as long enough to get elected. Doesn't even get you to the new swearing-in period. It's just to get elected. Less than a week. But does failure at trying to do something keep Americans from doing something? Is failing at a New Year's resolution, does that keep you from making another New Year's resolution? We try to get our bodies under control through diets. How many of you have tried diets? How many of you have failed on diets? How many of you have never tried? By the way, how many of you have never done a diet? Okay, the, the rest, everybody who raised their hand dislikes you. Seriously, because either you don't care or I don't know. I don't know what it is. We've tried all kinds of things to get our lives under control from calendars, journals, exercise programs, even reading the Bible, because instinctively we know that we don't know what's going on in this world. And so many times when we're spinning out of control, that's the very time that we'll turn to God's word. And we've tried all of this stuff over and over again, and we failed over and over again. And I think that's because there is a huge difference in trying to do something versus training to do something. What we're going to talk about today in in this whole series through January is training to do something. But let me just give you an example. How many of you, if you went out right now, as soon as we finished at noon today, if you went out, you could run, run, not walk, a 26.2 mile marathon. Let me see your hands. Okay, wait, wait, seriously. How many of you? One, two. No, you are under your own power. All right, so now now two or three of us who are sick people that could do this, by the way, you've got to be jacked up, kind of sick to, to be able to run a marathon. But what if we tried really, really, really hard to run a marathon? How many of you could do it at noon today? If you tried, just try harder. Still those two, right? Oh, maybe. Okay, there was one or two that said, well, if I tried, I could. Well, what if I said we're going to start today and we're going to design an exercise program where every day for the next 12 months we train so that you and I can run a marathon? How many of you think if we trained every day, did the exercise, did the diet, did everything to build up our endurance for 12 months, how many of you think you could run a marathon at this time next year? The biggest loser people can do it in six months. Okay, so everybody should, you know, I'm not saying you want to train. That's not what I'm saying. But if we did, if by some miracle of God, you and I were to train every day for the next 12 months, could we run a marathon at the first of 2012? How many, raise your hand. That should be everyone. Okay, now, see, here's what I'm talking about, though. Trying versus training. Trying harder is what Christians have done for a couple of thousand years. And we haven't been real successful at trying harder. 
Um, so today I want to challenge you not to try harder to get a grip on your life. Instead, this series is about training harder over this next month and then hopefully over these next 12 months to get a better grip on your life um, this year. But if things are going to work out and you're going to end 2011 differently than you ended 2010, you're going to have to be gut level honest about where you are right now and where you want to go over the next 12 months. Now, I hope you'll join me on this journey and, and to get a grip on what this, where this even comes from, this idea for order and control in our lives to get a grip. We're going to go back to the beginning. And I mean the very beginning. If you happen to have your Bibles, you can open them to Genesis chapter 1. And we're going to start with verse 1. Can't get any more beginning than that. Moses was speaking and he wrote this down. He said, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the waters. There's another translation that says chaos covered the world when God began to form the earth. Formless, empty, darkness covered it. Darkness is an absence of light. That's going to be important in just a minute. And the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. So in Genesis chapter 1, Moses is actually writing this for the Israelites. He had no clue that we would be reading this someday. But for the Israelites and then eventually us, thousands of years later, about 6,000 years later, 4,000, 5,000 years later, we're reading this. And what he's wanting everyone to know is, he's wanting the, the Israelites, the Hebrews to know, everything goes back to God. Everything you have, everything in this world begins and ends with God. He is the creator. He has power over it. And he wanted, he wanted them to identify everything they saw with a creator God who is greater than his creation. And if you continue to read the first chapter, and this is what I'm, I'm hoping you'll do this week. I'm, I'm asking you just to give it a try, just to read the first chapter of Genesis this week in preparation for next week, because you're going to begin to see what God did. Now, here's just, let me give you the highlights. Um, you'll see that God very deliberately began to create order out of that chaos, out of that formless, empty darkness that was over the earth. First, he created light because darkness is just an absence of light. And God said there needs to be light. And God's so powerful, he spoke and boom, there was light. That's pretty cool. Um, the, then he, he separated the waters on the earth from the waters in the sky, which was a pretty big deal. There was water everywhere. So he separated them. He created sky and he created the waters that are on the land. Um, then dry land and vegetation were created on the third day. Day four included the sun, moon, and the stars. And th by the way, this is, this is really cool because God would speak. Something would be created. God would look at his creation. He would say, this is really good. And then it would be that day and it would end. So then by day five and six, water creatures, birds, and land animals are created. So everything, and he's moving toward his highest creation on this planet. And that happened at the end of day six, the crowning jewel of life on this planet. And that's where we come to Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image. And when he's talking about us, he's not talking to angels. He's talking about God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, the triunity, three in one God. He's speaking amongst himself, themselves, and he says, let us make humans in our image to be like ourselves, to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock and all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created the world out of shapeless, chaotic nothingness. Not only, though, did he bring order out of that nothingness, that chaos. It's a really good order 
All you have to do is look around and begin to observe the planet. Anytime I go to the mountains and I'm up on the mountains and, and we did this in Haiti the last day we, we were there. Some of you have seen pictures of this. We went up in the mountains and in the midst of massive destruction, one of the be- most beautiful scenes I have ever been a part of opens up in front of us. We're eating snow cone or ice cream cones on the top of this mountain going, dude, this is gorgeous. And, and I believe somebody, I don't even remember who it was. Somebody said, how can you look at that? And not believe there is a God. When you study the intricacies of the body, the human body. A friend of mine did surgery on my foot. And he said one of the things when he was in medical school that amazed him was. Every time they went and did an experiment. And they would start digging through whatever part of the body they were digging through. He said you'd get to a certain point and you'd say. Okay the nerve is supposed to be right there. And they would open it up and there's the nerve. And then this is supposed to be there. And he said every time it was like that. And he said it's like somebody did it on purpose. And and here's the clue. Someone did. God did it. We were reading. um, We read the one minute Bible um, when we have lunch together. We try to have lunch together four or five times a week. And I'll pull out the Bible and we'll read this. And this week, of course, because it was um, we did this on Saturday on, on January 1st. It was in the beginning. And we talked about God's creation. We talked about how um, evolution says that we came out of this slime, that a, a little cell somehow began to understand how it could reproduce, and it began to reproduce, and then all of this stuff happened. The Bible says that God was the source. And, and evolution, if you just, and this is just a quick aside, if you study evolution and you look at the statistics about whether evolution could possibly be true, it's about as, as possible as a tornado going through a dump ground out here, our transfer station, which is not so impressive, but Anderson County transfer station. If a tornado were to go through the dump ground and create a fully functioning, flyable 747 jet, those are exactly the same odds that evolution happened. We talked about this with my kids. If you're walking along the beach and you discover a watch on the beach, do you think billions and billions of years ago, a cell decided that it wanted to multiply. And then it decided it didn't want to be alive, but it wanted to combine itself in such a way that it could tell time, even though it didn't know what time was. And then billions and billions of years ago, I'm walking on this beach and I discover this watch that created itself. Is that what you think? My kids are like, that's kind of stupid, Dad. I said, yes. You think if you find a watch, there is a watchmaker. If you just look at this beautiful creation, you'll see that there is a creator. And even evolutions, when they get back to the beginning, they can't tell you what happened before that. And we can say, first four words of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he gave order to everything that we have on this planet. So all of God's excellent work culminates in the end of that chapter Day six, with him creating only one species in his image. Which species was that? Humans. Human beings. The only one given his image. And if humans were made in the image of God, and we see that God is a God of order, what does that say about you? This is on your listening to God. God designed you for order. 
It is hardwired into you. And of course, it's hardwired, more hardwired into some of you than others. Some of you kind of like chaos. Some of you kind of like clutter around the house. And you're married to someone who doesn't. And it causes conflict, right? I think part of the reason we feel so uncomfortable when parts of our lives are spinning out of control is because we are made in the image of a creative, orderly God. And so there's this unrestlessness, or this restlessness, not unrestlessness, this restlessness in our souls because God designed us to be like Him and be in, in control. You see, God knew that if we were spinning out of control, we would never live fulfilled lives. He knew we would be frustrated if we didn't have direction and purpose in our lives. And so God gave us a set of, of rules and, and prescriptions and laws not to restrict us. Because, you know, around here, we, we resist um, legalism around here. We're not about rules and regulations. And even Jesus railed against the religious leaders because they were legalistic. But God knew that we would never be fully, um, we would never find our purpose and never be fully alive until we started doing what he designed us to do. And part of that is living lives of order, not lives of chaos. Well, let's, let's try to figure out how we're going to have some balance in our lives. Let's, let's consider um, a few lives. Put up that first pie graph, please, Mike. Now, this person spends about two-thirds of their time working, and because they spend so much time working, they have to go recreate or recreate so that they begin to feel better about themselves, and then maybe 10% of their time they spend with family. How in balance is this person? Do you know many people like this? Don't point at them. That's not the, part. That's not the reason we're doing this. Paragraph number two. This person has a lot more slices to the pie. About a third of their time is fitness. A third of their time is work. And then uh, you got a little bit more than 10% on family, friendships, and hobbies. Would you say this is better than the first person? But is this balanced? No? Good answer. Paragraph number three. This person spends a huge amount of time on spiritual growth. This has got to be the one. This one's got two-thirds, or almost, no, not, not quite half on spiritual growth. This is the Sunday school answer. This is the one, right? No, no. Now, we're not looking for this, but what we are looking for, we're, we're going to stop talking about hypothetical people for just a moment, and we're going to talk about real people, and we're going to talk about you. And you see the circle on your listening guide, and what I want you to do is I want you to take a minute to pie graph your life, where you spend your time. And, and before you do that, some of you already started. Those of you who are the order people, you've already done it. You did it 10 minutes ago, and you're like, when's he going to get there? <laughs> now, don't do it yet, because you need to understand that some people spend enormous amounts of time trying to hide what you're about to draw on your map from people in your life, as if they don't already know. And sometimes you're even trying to hide the truth of your life from yourself. And that's what I meant when I said you've got to be gut level honest. If you want to be any different a year from now than you were this past year, you've got to be honest. So I'm going to give you a few seconds just of silence here, and I want you to begin to map it out. And then for fun, if you want to have some fun, not right now. As soon as we walk out of here, show it to your friends or your family to see if you're full of baloney or not, because they'll tell you. If you really want to know, ask your kids. Your kids go, God, who's that person? Because it's, it's sure not you. All right, so let's be honest. 
Map yours out. 30 seconds. And then look at me when you're done. Just so I'll know. Pretty funny to me, the students are still going. School, games, food, and sleep. That's it. Come on. Video games. Maybe music. All right, I think the majority of you are done. Now, I want to get very specific. We, we see the breakdown of your life in that pie graph, but I want you to get very specific about the five areas we're going to be talking about the rest of today and the next four weeks. And um, in order to do that, you're going to have to be real and honest because we live in, in a society of delayed responsibility. Yeah, I'm going to read my Bible. Yeah, I'm going to get in shape. Yeah, I'm going to spend time with the family. I'm going to do that tomorrow. And some of us have been doing that for weeks or months or some of us for years planning to do it, but never making a decision to do it. So there's five areas. Go ahead and put those up on the, the screen. Mike, you've got them on your, your listening guide. I want you to look at these five areas and notice that that number one, when you look at your schedule, number one over there is spinning out of control. My schedule is out of control. Mediocre means I've got kind of a grip on that area of my life. Or a 10 is I've got a firm grip on this area of my life. This shouldn't take long either. Take a few seconds and go through all five of those and circle where you are. I did this about 15 years ago, and I still have the list. I was looking at it this week, and it's kind of funny to see how things change over the, the course of your life. Some things don't, some things do. Now, I want you to asterisk your strongest area, the area you have the best grip on. And then I want you to put a star next to the area you have the least grip on. And if you look at all of those, you'll see where we're going over the next five weeks. We're going to talk about your physical health, your financial health, your spiritual growth, your relationships. The rest of the day, we're going to talk about your schedule. Now, I don't want you to be overwhelmed that your life is overwhelmed. All right? That's not the purpose of this. I want you to look at one or two areas that you think are legitimate areas that maybe God is trying to show you that you need to get a firm grip on this year. If you're married, I, I want to ask you to share that with your spouse at some time. If you're in a small group, you need to share that with small group or your accountability group that there's some areas that God was showing you today that you need to get a grip on. Now, let's go back to God's word and let's see how we can figure this out. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 1. 
For everything, there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die. Now, interestingly, Solomon is writing this letter and Solomon was was uh, said to be the wisest man who ever lived. He contemplated everything about life and he started this out and he gives us a series of opposites. And he says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. Now, I think it's interesting because these are two things over which you don't have much control. You sure don't have any uh, control over when you're born and, and only if you drive crazily do you have any influence over when you die. Um, but two things that you don't have control over and then he's going to go on to some other opposites. A time to plant and a time to harvest. A time to kill and a time to heal. And some of you are going to say, whoa, 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 doesn't the Ten Commandments say thou shalt not kill? And I'm going to say no. Ten Commandments says thou shalt not murder. Different words. There, and we've talked about this before. There is a self-defense. Our, our uh, laws of our country are based on this commandment. Thou shalt not murder, premeditated murder. If somebody's coming in your house, you have the right to defend you. If someone's attacking a family member, you have a right to defend yourself. And there are times when we have to go to war, and that's going to be one in just a minute. So it says, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. Uh, then the next, it says, a time to tear down and a time to build up. One of the coolest things I watched on Friday morning was the top 10 implosions of 2010. Texas Stadium was on there. There's about time that sucker went because it was looking bad. I don't know. I used to have to drive by that thing every day to go to work. And that was back in the late 80s. And it looked bad then. So by 2010, it was time to blow that sucker up. And it was pretty cool. It was on a Sunday morning. And I actually turned it on and watched the countdown and, you know, watched the little kid push the button. That was a pretty cool implosion. First Baptist Church, Dallas, imploded several of their buildings in downtown Dallas. Uh, TCU, the Horn Frogs, they won the Rose Bowl last night. Woohoo! Some of you don't care. Most of you don't care. But they're, they're renovating their stadium. So this big part of the stadium that I'd visited back when I was in college, when Baylor played there, they blew it up and it fell down. Some really cool implosions. And all of those people would say it was time to tear down those buildings because they'd served their purpose. But they're not just tearing them down. Now they're turning around and building something new and better in its place. So there's a time to build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance. Both of these things have the idea of tying it back to a time to be born and a time to die. And um, if you've ever been around someone who's moving towards the end of their life, you will understand what it means to mourn, a, a, a time to cry. And I was talking to my dad. My dad's moving really bad. I was in his bedroom this week um, when we were home and dad's moving around and dad's been saying this for a lot of time. So it's hard to take him totally serious. But he's like, I don't know how much longer I'm for this world. But he's 88 years old. And, and he said, I'm so tired. Sometimes I could just cry. And I said, well, daddy, when you go, you're going to make a lot of the rest of us cry. And he said, yeah, I know. I don't want to do that. But it's coming. Janie came home from. The nursing home yesterday after seeing her mom and her mom's in, in bad shape. At least yesterday was a bad day. And and we we know that she's not long for this world. And and when she passes, I'm going to cry. When my dad passes, I'm going to cry. And when I go to their funerals. I'll probably weep a little bit, but then I'm going to start celebrating what they meant and I'm going to carry on those parts that they implanted in me. Janie's mom implanted a lot in me in the years that we were dating in, in the early years of our marriage before Alzheimer's set in. My dad, I am so much like my dad, it makes everybody else kind of crazy. 
uh, in many ways, when we go places, they're like, oh, dad and I'll sit over in a corner and kind of share stories. And we got inside jokes and all that stuff. And they're like, oh, y'all are just like each other. I want to celebrate what my daddy did. So there's a time to cry. But if I get stuck crying about my mother-in-law or my dad when they pass away or anybody else, if I get stuck there, I completely miss what God has for the rest of my life. So there's a time to cry and there's a time to mourn. But there's a time to get over it too and laugh and dance and celebrate those things from life. There's a time to embrace and a time to turn away. When I read that, I thought about sometimes when we discipline our children. Sometimes the reason we don't discipline our children is because we feel like it will break the relationship with them. But it's necessary to have a temporary distance between you and a child to teach them what is right and what's wrong. So discipline done the right way, you may have a temporary separation. But then the makeup is great. If you will do what you're supposed to do as the adult, one of you has to be the adult, one has to be the child, I'm hoping the older one is the adult. I'm hoping that. There's a time to turn away with some hard love. A time to tear and a time to mend. This has to do with... Oh, wait, I skipped one. Time to keep, a time to throw away, time to search, time to quiz. I'm just going all over the place. Time to gather stones, scatter stones. This, this one time to tear and a time to mend has this idea of discovering sin in your life. Because back in their culture, whenever they came to understand that they had moved away from God and they had broken the heart of God, what they would do is they would take their clothes and they would rip them as a sign of mourning, as a sign of, I have ripped the fellowship with my heavenly father and I'm so serious about repentance that I'm going to rip this, I'm going to put sackcloth ashes on my head and I'm going to mourn before my God. There's a time to tear but there's a time to mend as well and to allow God to heal you from that and, and not, again, be stuck in your sins of the past. God is such a big and powerful God that he can take your biggest mess up and he can turn it into your biggest ministry in the future if you'll be willing to come before your heavenly father and lay it at his feet and accept his forgiveness and restoration. A time to be quiet and a time to speak. And we hate that one, don't we? At least one half of the spouses in here hate that one. Depends on which one we need to do, right? We like the time to speak. We don't like the time to be silent. A time to love and a time to hate. Ooh, what you talking about? Time to hate. Well, look at the next one. A time for war and a time for peace. Do you know when Jesus came into the temple and he saw people um, making money, making lots of money, insane amounts of money, not just making a profit, making insane amounts of money, off of poor people. The Bible says that this was the last week of Jesus' life when he came into the temple. It actually happened twice. But he comes into the temple. He sees this. He goes out. He doesn't lose his temper and freak out. He goes back out. The next day he comes in and he goes and he gets whips and he turns over the tables of the money changers and he chases them out. And people are like, what are you talking? What? He's lost his mind. And, and the Bible says that zeal for his father's house would consume him. So much so that when someone was defrauding his father's house, he would chase them out. There are times for intense... And, and by the way, if there are some things that don't make you mad, there's something wrong with you. Injustice is supposed to make us mad. People dying and going to hell ought to move us. There are some things that should move your heart. And if they don't... There's something wrong with your heart. And maybe 
Maybe you need to discover that and mourn before God. So Solomon considers all this and he says, so I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat, drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor for these are gifts from God. A different way that I think he's saying this is when we live a balanced life and enjoy what we have and don't long for the things that we don't have, but we're thankful for what we do have, then that's a gift from God. And you are at a different place than probably 99% of the people who are on the planet. Well, since the Bible tells us there's a time for everything, that means we've been given an awesome responsibility to discern and decide what we need to do today and to discern and decide what we don't need to do at all. There are some things you need to stop doing. There are some things you need to start doing. Part of growing and maturing as a Christ follower is figuring that out, that I don't have time to do everything, so I've got to make some choices. And as your pie graph probably shows, we don't always make the right choices, do we? Things get out of whack. Some, and, and without meaning, we didn't intend to. Nobody intends to get a divorce. Nobody intends to have a sucky marriage. Nobody intends to be a horrible parent. But sometimes we turn out that way because of choices that we make. And, and I saw this, I read about this study that a Cornell uh, University professor did a study to determine the average amount of time that a middle-class father spends with his preschool child on an average day. They actually put microphones on the dads, put microphones on the preschoolers to figure out how much time they interact during the day. And they were shocked to find out that the average middle-class father spends 37.7 seconds per day interacting with their preschool children And then they found out that those same preschool children and middle-class families spend 54 hours a week watching television. So the question becomes, who's raising that child? It ain't daddy. And it's no wonder the children have different ideas, ideals, than their parents do. If our schedules are out of balance, the, the consequences will be severe and it will show up in our relationships, those who are closest to us. And you've got to realize that God will never call you to do more than you can handle. When we're overextended and we're burned out, that is our fault, not God's. That means if you're burned out right now, it means you are doing some things that God has not called you to do. And you need to stop doing those and you need to figure out what God wants you to do. When you do things that God does not want you to do, that's called sin. And sin separates us from our loving Heavenly Father. Mature Christ followers have come to understand that God is interested in every area of their lives, not just a part of their lives. The Bible tells us that God created us to work. One of the first things he told Adam to do was to work the land and have dominion over it. And God says, and then in the New Testament, the Bible says, everything we do, we should do for God. But he also meant for our jobs to be a profession, not an obsession. Believe it or not, God is just as... uh, Concerned about your recreational life. Even Jesus Christ withdrew from the crowds, went up on the mountain to pray and to be refreshed from time to time. God is interested in your recreational life. God is interested in your relationships and he wants us to spend the right amount of time, invest time in those closest to us so that we impact future generations. Because if you don't invest in your children, you are impacting future generations, but not the way you want to. Because the sins of the fathers will be carried on to the third and the fourth generation. And if your dad didn't parent you right, then you tend to be the same type of dad to your children and you need to figure out and break the cycle. 
God is just as interested in your spiritual growth and wants you to be involved in both corporate and private worship. The Bible tells us over and over, we are supposed to gather regularly with other believers, but we're also supposed to spend time in the closet by ourselves with God. And in the closet, you're not coming out of the closet. You understand? He just means in private. And Jesus said, what you pray about and seek in private, my Father in heaven sees in private. So that when we come together, then our our worship times corporately become overflowing with joy and recognition of everything that God has given us. Because of our private worship, our public worship becomes more spirit-filled and powerful. Does that make sense? Thank you. Nikki and I right there. So what would a possible balanced life look like? Here's a possibility. How about this one? Equal emphasis on each of the four major areas. Looks good, doesn't it? But I have a problem with this. And that's because it has the spiritual life as one segment of life, as if the other segments are independent of the spiritual life. But this is reality, isn't it? Don't we tend to treat our spiritual life like it's a Sunday morning only experience? And part of the reason most of us have left some other churches is because we felt like there wasn't anything real there. And people come in and pretend everything is together. Because people would segment their spiritual lives. And for an hour a week on Sunday mornings, everything's woohoo, yay, Jesus. And maybe not even finishing Sunday, all hell breaks loose in our lives. When you live like that, your kids notice very, very quickly. And they turn their back on the God that you profess to serve. Maybe a better illustration would be this last one. Where you put the cross at the center. And then because of who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, it impacts every area of your life. I think this is what is biblical. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Now put that one back up if you would, paragraph number 5, Mike. When Jesus is at the center of your life, you find yourself thinking about Him throughout your day. It becomes natural to pray with people or, or maybe even at work. And some of you are going, oh, I would not pray at work. Well, at least pray privately. Jesse was telling me in our small group time about some guys at his work that are praying together. He said, man, it's changed the attitude on our work shift. They don't try to force it on anybody. They just invite people to come and pray. Imagine if you and I would pray while we're driving. Would that change your attitude towards other? It would mine. Y'all don't have attitudes towards other people when you're driving. So that one, sorry, that one doesn't. That would affect every area of our lives. When Christ moves from just being a part of your life to being center of it, He will begin to influence your thought life. He'll begin to influence everything about you and people will notice the difference. You just pull Janie aside. Now, she won't tell you this because she won't divulge secrets, but she would probably say this. You ask her how I treat her and my family when I'm really close to the Lord and how I treat them when I'm far from the Lord. And ask her if there's any difference. And she goes, yeah. He's a jerk when he's far from the Lord. But when I'm walking with the Lord, I have patience. I have peace. And I react in a totally different way. 
than when I'm far from the Lord. Now, the balanced life that God desires is for Christ to be at the center of everything. And I want you to know that God doesn't seem to use people in a mighty way who have a casual relationship with him. We've talked about this before. This is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. You can't casually date the bride of Christ and be used powerfully by Christ. The Bible is clear. When you make Christ the center, he will be your guide. And he will even show you during this series what area you need to focus on if you'll allow him that opportunity. Now, I know there are seasons of life where things go crazy. For example, we're entering into the the season of life that is crazy for a CPA. From about now till April 15th, sometimes longer, a CPA's life is insane. I would not want to do that. I don't like doing my own taxes. I don't want to do yours. But during that season of life, they may spend an inordinate amount of time working and they better plan for when that season is over so that they can make up for it in other areas. Moms of young children, Janie used to struggle with having a daily time with the Lord because she couldn't even go to the bathroom by herself, much less read the Bible by herself. You under, yeah, uh-huh. Some, you, you, you moms of young kids are right there. And so she really struggled until our kids got older, and now she's back into that routine where she has time, and Mama goes and sits in that chair. Don't jack with Mama because she's talking with Jesus. And, and I think my kids are at the point, they're like, we want Mama to talk to Jesus. We want daddy to hang out with Jesus because they're different people and you will be too. <sighs> Having Christ in the middle is the best way to handle getting a grip on your life and especially your schedule. Look at Ephesians five fifteen and 16. We'll finish with this. So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but live like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. There, th- here's another opposite. Paul gives us this opposite. Fools don't plan, don't examine their lives, and they end up spinning out of control everywhere. Their relationships spin out of control. Their jobs spin out of control. Their finances spin out of control because they are living foolishly. But Paul says there is a wise way to live, and that's with Christ at the center. We talked about this a long time ago. There's, there's a question you can ask. What is the wise thing to do? Best question ever. What is the wise thing to do? Considering who I am, considering my past, considering the people that I've come through in my relationships, considering all of that, what is the wise choice to make? And for most of you, the wise choice is not to get in another relationship just yet if you've just gotten out of one. Because a dude isn't going to fulfill you. Christ is. Another sexual encounter is not going to fulfill you, guys. Christ is. The wise thing to do is to slow down and go before your heavenly father and ask him, what do I do next? And the Bible says, if you'll do that, he will show you. Bow your heads for just a moment. I want you to pray and just say, God, what do you want me to do? What area do you want me to focus on? Father, you've heard these prayers, and my prayer is that you'll answer every one of them. In Jesus' name, amen.